I have uh, no financial uh, conflicts of interest to disclose. Um, I do like to acknowledge our funding sources, uh, which include our healthcare system, UW Medicine, uh, the Cambia Health Foundation, as well as the National Institutes of Health uh, and the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. And so what we do together is talk a little bit about the role of palliative care in the intensive care unit, um, identify uh, what we know about communication strategies that work to improve patient and family outcomes, as well as strategies that we've found don't work. Um, and then I'll finish by talking about the key of shared decision-making in this uh, particular context. So I think one of the things that's very important around thinking about palliative care in general, but uh, also in the ICU, is uh, to make sure that uh, we are articulating that palliative care is broader than just end-of-life care. I think anyone who's working to integrate palliative care into the intensive care unit setting will often come across uh, clinicians, ICU clinicians in particular, who equate these two things, who think palliative care and end-of-life care are the same thing. Uh, and I think when we allow our target audience as palliative care providers or educators to think that way, uh, we really set ourselves up to miss opportunities to improve palliative care for those patients who are not imminently dying um, or for those patients who, for whom we don't recognize that they're imminently dying. Articulating care as being broader as care focused on improving communication about goals of care, maximizing comfort and quality of care, I think is uh, is an important part of uh, improving palliative care in the intensive care unit setting. What we know about uh, end-of-life care in the ICU is that there's a tremendous amount of variability. These are data from the U.S. looking at uh, a number of uh, uh, hospitals across the U.S., 27,152 ICUs. Uh, and what this, these dots on, these, on this slide shows is the proportion of in each ICU, each black dot is an ICU, uh, uh, amongst those who died, what proportion had a decision to forego life-sustaining treatments. And what we see is this tremendous range from 12% uh, of deaths up to 62% of deaths preceded by a decision to limit life-sustaining treatment. And this is after adjusting for severity of illness uh, and patient and ICU characteristics. So some variability is to be expected, but to see this degree of variability, I think, speaks to um, the fact that we, there isn't a consensus amongst intensivists and people working in the ICU about how to approach these kinds of issues. This is not a uniquely uh, American problem. These are data from the UK, also uh, each bar representing an ICU, uh, showing tremendous variability uh, in the proportion of deaths that are preceded by a decision to withdraw life-sustaining treatment uh, from less than 5% to over 90%. So really very large uh, a variability that's not explained by severity of illness uh, or case mix seen in the ICU. And in fact, if you look around the world, uh, there's tremendous variability. We did a systematic review looking at uh, all the studies that have been published, uh, 56 studies, mostly from Europe and North America. Um, but but there were some studies from other parts of the world. And we looked at the proportion of uh, deaths preceded by withdrawal of life-staying treatment in these three different groups. Uh, in the top, studies examining variability between countries or regions of the world. Uh, in the middle, studies examining variability within ICU 
use in the same country or the same small region. Uh, and then finally, one study that showed variability uh, between physicians working in a single view. And, and I show this to make the point that there is important variability in different parts of the world uh, that may have uh, may be strongly influenced by culture, uh, by uh, differences in legal uh, uh, perspectives. Uh, but in fact, we also see tremendous variability within countries and even within a single ICU. Uh, and this is something that most ICU nurses can tell you. Uh, their experiences approach to issues around palliative care and life care in the ICU can vary dramatically depending on the attending. There's also some data that this variability is uh, uh, problematic. Um, these are, uh, uh, this is data from a, a study that was published in JAMA in 2011, uh, cross-sectional survey of ICU clinicians, physicians and nurses working in 82 different ICUs. And what these authors found that was that uh, in certain, on a given day, uh, at least uh, over a quarter of them felt that they were taking care of a patient who was receiving inappropriate care. Uh, and if you look at the inappropriate care, the majority of it is, uh, from the clinician's perspective, patients are receiving too much care. Uh, uh, minority, they, they feel like they're receiving too little care. And if you look at the clinician's perspectives on the reasons for inappropriate care, you see some real issues around quality, lack of participation in decision-making, inaccurate information to the patient or family, not good quality care, and disregarding patients' wishes. Um, so I think there is some data that uh, nationally and internationally, uh, this is an issue that I think is very important uh, for us to focus on. And I think our palliative care community, both as clinicians and as educators, has an opportunity uh, to provide some uh, support in this area. So then uh, with that as some background, let's talk a little bit about identifying strategies uh, that work uh, and some that don't work. Uh, and what I would say is that I think it's helpful to think about three different models for integrating palliative and critical care. The first model is to increase the palliative care skills of ICU clinicians, what's been called the integrative model. The second model is to incorporate palliative care specialists into the ICU, uh, the consultative model. Uh, and then the third is the model that I personally think makes the most sense in most ICUs uh, if they have access to specialty palliative care consultation is a mixed model that includes both training in palliative care for ICU clinicians and uh, palliative care consultation when there are unmet needs that ICU team, unmet palliative care needs that the primary ICU team uh, isn't able to effectively or efficiently uh, meet. We've been very involved in uh, promoting uh, uh, integrative palliative care and training palliative care clinicians. Um, many people think that if you provide more education around primary palliative care, then the need for specialty palliative care will decrease. In the ICU, my experience is actually the opposite. The more we train ICU clinicians in primary palliative care, the more they recognize how many how much unmet palliative care needs there are amongst ICU patients and particularly their families and the more they request palliative care specialty consultation. So if we look at the data supporting these models, there really aren't data to support the, um, uh, the mixed model. There haven't been studies that have done that, but there are some studies that have looked at supporting the, um, uh, the integrative model and the consultative 
model, and I'll go through some of those. Uh, this was a, a study that we did, a series of studies that we did, looking at improving ICU clinician palliative care skills. And the intervention was a multi-improvement program that included clinician education with lectures like this one, uh, but also included um, uh, materials, educational materials. It included identifying local champions in each ICU and giving them a one or two day training uh, in palliative care. It included offering um, order forms and pathways. We surveyed uh, family members and actually uh, fed back fa uh, ICU specific family satisfaction data um, to the ICUs uh, and also uh, did academic detailing with ICU leaders, nurses and physicians around improving palliative care in that specific ICU. And this multifaceted intervention we, we piloted as a before-after pilot in one hospital, which was the hospital that I work in. Uh, and what we found was the intervention as a, in a before-after analysis was associated with improved family and quality of dying and reduction in length of stay, ICU length of stay, for patients that die. Uh, so with that uh, uh, promising data, we went on to do a, a cluster randomized trial randomizing six hospitals to receive the intervention during the trial and six hospitals to receive it after the trial uh, was over. So all hospitals got it, but only, only half of them got it during the randomized trial component. Um, and the intervention was implemented successfully. Clinicians enjoyed the intervention. Uh, we had over 3,000 eligible patients that were included in the trial, but this randomized trial in these 12 hospitals was negative. We didn't see any effect on processes of care or outcomes. Um, and these are the data for the before-after study in my hospital, uh, before we did the randomized trial, uh, looking at our main outcome, which is family rating of the quality of dying and death and nurse rating of the quality of dying and death using a standardized questionnaire with a score that goes from zero as the worst to 100, which is the best. And we found that after the intervention, family quality of dying and death uh, scores were higher, 68 compared to 62. Uh, that was a trend towards statistical significance. We found similar results with the nurses, but we had a larger number of nurses. The confidence intervals were, were narrower, uh, and that was statistically significant. So suggesting maybe improvement in family ratings, we did see a significant improvement in nurse ratings. Uh, and we also saw a significant uh, change in length of stay for patients that died. No change for survivors which we wouldn't expect with this intervention. But for patients who died in the ICU, uh, there was a significant reduction by 1.7 days on average, suggesting we're making these decisions uh, more quickly, uh, reducing the prolongation of dying that we often see in ICUs, and doing in, that in a way that improved the nurses' ratings and, and it worsened the family ratings and may have improved that as well. But then when we took this out to the randomized controlled trial in other hospitals, uh, we found no difference in family rated quality of dying and death, no difference in nurse rating of quality of dying and death or ICU length of stay. Um, and in fact, we also looked at the intervention on what we called markers of palliative care, processes of care. Uh, we did see a significant increase in the, in the provision of social work by social workers uh, associated with the intervention, uh, but there was no difference in, in most of these outcomes. And interestingly, one of our key outcomes was a conference within the first 72 hours of ICU admission, and that actually got significantly worse. Now, 
Now, when we published this trial in 2011, we argued that we thought that this was an issue of multiple comparisons. We didn't really think that the intervention reduced the number of family conferences in the first 72 hours. But I've actually, since then, come to believe that uh, this actually may have been an unintended consequence uh, of the intervention. And in fact, if we look over all 12 of these hospitals, actually 13, including the pilot hospital, um, over time we see a decrease in family conferences within the first 72 hours uh, for patients that ultimately died in the ICU. And I think that this is, um, I think this is probably a real finding. Um, we focused on communication. I think clinicians uh, as a result of this intervention, we're talking to families more by telephone on rounds uh, at the bedside. But I think what may have happened that clinicians think, "Oh, I've talked to the clinician. I've talked to the family. I don't need to have a family conference." Um, and I think it's there are lots of ways to talk to the families, and and many of them are important for different reasons. But there's something that can happen in a in an interdisciplinary family conference around supporting families and supporting. Um, uh, effective surrogate decision making, um, and I think this may be a, a problem that we that we saw fewer family conferences. A second study that I would argue is also an integrative study uh, is this one that was published in the New England Journal uh, a little over ten years ago, uh, and uh, this was a study conducted by Eli Azale and colleagues in in France, uh, and in this study they identified. Uh, patients in the ICU who the attending physician thought would die within a few days, so this is relatively late in the ICU stay, and then they randomized uh, uh, patients to either uh, usual intervention, which was to have a proactive family conference on the day of randomization or the following day, and to use a value strategy for that family conference uh, uh, that I'll show you, as well as providing a bereavement pamphlet for the family. The value strategy is something we worked out uh, through uh, studies of uh, audio taping family conferences in the ICU and uh, stands for, uh, V stands for um, making state explicitly value uh, the, the information provided by families, uh, A for acknowledging families' emotions that arise during the family conference, L for listening to the family and really encouraging the clinicians to try to listen uh, as much or more than they speak. U for asking questions that allow the clinicians to understand who the patient is as a person, and then E for eliciting family questions. And this relatively simple intervention to improve ICU clinician conduct of family conferences was associated with pretty dramatic reductions in family uh, member symptoms of anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder three months after um, the patient had died in the ICU. These were administered by telephone using standardized questionnaires. And I think it shows two things. One is the level of these symptoms were very high in these family members at three months. And secondly, that this relatively simple intervention focused on improving communication with families uh, was associated with quite dramatic reductions in, in these levels of symptoms. Another study that I think also is integrative uh, conducted by the same group uh, in France, led by Nancy Kentish Barnes, uh, was the study of uh, the effect of a condolence letter uh, on grief symptoms amongst relatives of patients that died in the ICU. And this randomized trial was conducted amongst uh, 242 relatives of patients who died in the ICU in one of 22 ICUs in 
France, they again compared intervention to usual care. This intervention now was a condolence letter that was handwritten by the ICU physician or nurse uh, in charge of the care of that particular patient. Um, and they asked that they covered five pre-specified domains in the letter, but each letter was individualized. Each clinician could individualize that letter both to their own style and to their um, uh, experiences with that particular patient and family. The letter was written within two or three days um, of the patient's death and then sent uh, 15 days after the patient's death. In this intervention, again, you could argue integrative using the ICU team to provide support for families uh, was actually associated with worse family member outcomes. Uh, they had increased symptoms of anxiety and depression uh, at 180 days or six months after the patient died in the ICU. Uh, and this shows you the, the HAD scale, hospital anxiety and depression scale, and the HADS depression subscale, both significantly worse with the intervention saw more symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder as well. So this intervention was intended to support family members. It's interesting, they did a qualitative follow-up study in which family members uh, overwhelmingly appreciated these letters uh, from, the, from the clinicians, uh, but they were associated with increased symptoms uh, of, um, of anxiety and depression and PTSD at least up until six months. We don't know about one-year or two-year outcomes, but again, another study that may have had unintended consequences uh, with interventions uh, intended to improve uh, family member outcomes. And then finally, uh, the last uh, study of an integrative approach uh, that I'll uh, talk about is uh, this one uh, published earlier this year in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, this was a study uh, conducted by Doug White and his colleagues in Pittsburgh. And this was a, a stepped wedge cluster randomized trial uh, where they uh, actually randomized the, uh, the ICU to receive interventions at different points uh, during uh, the study period. The intervention was a multi-component family support intervention that was delivered by the ICU team and led by trained ICU nurses within each uh, ICU, what they called the partner nurse, who had additional training from the, the investigators around how to support family members. Uh, they did this in five ICUs uh, and uh, uh, had over 1,400 uh, patients included in the trial. And I'm not going to go through this in detail, but it's in the article and it shows you acid intervention included in, in terms of uh, 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 prescribing uh, meetings with the family, uh, prescribing the role for the partner nurse in supporting the family throughout these meetings uh, and uh, multiple meetings over time. In terms of outcomes, uh, what they found uh, was that they had a, um, uh, their primary outcome was to look at the HAT score, uh, which was anxiety and depression again. They did not see a significant difference for family members' uh, psychological symptoms on the HADS uh, or on the IES score, which is a measure of post-traumatic stress symptoms. Um, but they did see significant improvements in the family members or surrogates' uh, ratings of the quality of communication by the ICU team, as well as the, uh, the ratings on this uh, PPPC score, uh, which is a measure of their satisfaction with communication and decision-making. So the family members certainly gave 
higher ratings around communication decision making um, for uh, the um, uh, for the in, for the family members who are in the intervention group. They also saw a significant reduction in length of stay uh, for both the ICU and the hospital uh, in the intervention group. So uh, uh, no effect on the primary outcome, but they did see significant uh, changes in communication decision making and healthcare utilization. There was a slight increase in mortality in the intervention group at the in-hospital, uh, within hospital death, um, although there was no change in uh, the six-month mortality or the proportion who were living independently at home at six months. And so it's interesting to think about what this slight increase in mortality might mean, but the fact that there was no difference in six months or living independently suggests this outcome is associated with improved communication, improved utilization of care, um, and uh, certainly no difference in mortality at six months or living independently at six months. I'll go over about this sort of integrative approach. I think the summary is that uh, there have been some studies that have shown benefit and some that haven't. Um, I do think that one of the lessons learned from these studies is that these integrative approaches really need to be adapted to the specific IUs uh, and that there may, because there's so much variability from ICU to ICU, uh, the same uh, approach in each ICU may not be effective. In terms of estimating the impact of palliative care interventions and advanced care planning, uh, we did a systematic review of this uh, that was published in Critical Care Medicine in 2015, uh, where we looked both at advanced care planning interventions in the hospital before ICU admission, as well as uh, primary and specialty palliative care interventions in the ICU uh, with uh, 216 references identified, looking identifying seven RCTs, randomized trials, and 11 observational studies. And I'm going to focus on, for the purposes of today, I'm going to focus on the specialty palliative care um, interventions. Um, and there have been a number of studies looking at specialty palliative care or ethics consultations to, re to improve communication uh, with patients if they're able or primarily with family members in the ICU. Uh, we found two randomized trials and 11 observational studies. The randomized trials both looked at ethics consultations and both showed significant reductions in ICU length of stay associated with these interventions, so improved uh, decision making and reduction in prolongation of dying. And then the observational studies, uh, nine of the 11 were positive with reduction in ICU length of stay. Um, associated with uh, these were sleep care consultation. Um, there's less data on other outcomes, um, uh, but there is this study that was published in, in 2016. And I, this is a study by Shannon Karsten and his colleagues, a multi-center uh, randomized trial. Uh, and what they did in this study was uh, they did this uh, trial in four medical ICUs. Uh, they enrolled uh, 250 patients and over 360 families. And I think it's very important to understand what the intervention was in this study. Uh, I would argue that this is not a study of palliative care consultation. Uh, instead, what this study is, is it's a study of having a palliative care provider lead one or two family meetings um, during the ICU stay. Uh, and the palliative care providers were asked explicitly to talk about prognosis and to focus on prognostic understanding for the family members. One of the things that I think is very interesting and important 
this study is that an ICU physician was present for only 9% of these first family meetings and only 3% of the second family meetings. And I think this is very different certainly than the way we practice uh, in my ICU uh, where family meeting, the palliative care providers are at family meetings with the ICU clinicians who leads it may vary from case to case but we would rarely have the palliative care provider conduct a family meeting without the ICU team. Um, the results of this study was that they had no change in family member symptoms of anxiety or depression at three months. They actually saw increased symptoms of post-traumatic disorder with this intervention. Um, I don't think this suggests that palliative care consultation would be associated with increased symptoms of PTSD, but I do think it suggests that or at least one interpretation of this study um, results may be that having a palliative care provider meet with the family without clinic, ICU clinicians there uh, may actually result in increased uh, stress numbers, perhaps feeling like the different clinicians were not on the same page. And I think speaks to the importance of palliative care consultation, consultation with the ICU clinicians in the ICU. We conducted a, a study that was, uh, a, I think, a consultative model um, or closest to a consultative model. This was a, a randomized trial of uh, communication facilitators to reduce family distress and intensity of care in the ICU. Uh, we enrolled critically ill patients with respiratory failure who were randomized to either the intervention or usual care. And this communication facilitator was either a nurse or a social worker who received training from us in how to facilitate communication between the ICU team uh, and the family. And they were trained to address individual communication needs of individual family members, to identify uh, and uh, mediate conflict either between the, the team and the family or within the team or within the family. And I think one of the things that we explicitly tried to do that's different than the prior trial is that these communication facilitators were not intended to conduct this communication, but rather to help the ICU team conduct it, and they were well integrated with the ICU team. We enrolled 268 family members of 168 uh, patients, and we found uh, no difference in depression symptoms at three months, although there was a trend towards decrease, but there was a significant decrease at months in depressive symptoms measured by the PHQ-9, uh, no change in anxiety symptoms, uh, and then perhaps a trend towards reduced post-traumatic stress symptoms uh, at six months. The intervention was also associated with a re reduction in ICU length of stay amongst patients that died in the study, uh, no, no change amongst the patients who survived, um, also associated with the reduced costs, a not Surprisingly, since length of stay is a primary driver of costs, but in fact, it was also associated with reduction in ICU daily costs. So dividing the cost number of days, we saw a reduction in the intensity of care as defined by daily costs associated with the intervention. So that uh, summarizes, I think, some of the recent trials uh, that have looked at both integrative and consultative palliative care. And then I wanted to just finish uh, with a, a few words about uh, the role of shared decision-making and, and the, the way that that often plays out in intensive care unit settings. I think that there's uh, growing consensus amongst uh, ICU clinicians that shared decision-making is an important part uh, of decision-making in an 
ICU and that many of these decisions about uh, intensity of care should neither be entirely clinician decisions nor entirely family decisions, uh, but rather uh, be a balance. I think what's important and often missed about this, though, uh, is that we should not view this as a one-size-fits-all, but where this balance plays out uh, ought to vary depending on key factors, including prognosis, level of certainty about prognosis, as well as family preferences. The worse the prognosis and the more certain we are, the more we should be willing to take on the burden of responsibility of decision making, particularly if the family wants to do that. Um, and uh, family's preferences for their role is very important. I'll talk a little bit more about that. The other thing that I think is important when we teach this concept of shared decision making is that the goal is not for everyone to be equal partners around the table. We're not trying to train family members to be ICU clinicians, um, but rather we all have our roles to play. The patient, if they're able, the family, if they're not, they are often the experts in the patient's in their preferences. Uh, we, on the other hand, are the experts in what treatments are indicated and need to take the responsibility for that expertise. Well, how, what role do patients, I'm sorry, family members want to play in these decision making? Uh, when you ask family members, you get data that look like this. Uh, this is data from Darren Highland and his colleagues looking at over a thousand family members of patients in ICUs across Canada. Um, and they asked uh, family members to decisions be entirely a family decision, family decision with physician input, equally shared decision, physician decision with family input, or should the physician make the decision on their own? And what you see is that the average is shared decision making. But what is important on this slide, in my opinion, is not the average, but the fact that there's a distribution. Um, and you see family members falling across uh, this distribution. And this distribution may change, uh, in fact, it does change by region, by country. Uh, it may change by other factors, too. These are data from uh, the Netherlands showing a shift in this distribution where the family members in, in, in Northern Europe and uh, the physicians be more involved in decision-making. But even though you see a shift, you still see a distribution. You still see family members who want a shared share decision-making, uh, or actually want it to be a family decision. And we have some data to suggest that how we handle this difference for family members' symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, we looked at now dichotomizing it into primarily the doctor's decision or family member being involved in the decision. And we didn't see an association, although there was a trend, there was no association between the family member's preferred role and symptoms of PTSD or between family members' actual role um, and PTSD symptoms. But when we looked at whether their preferred role was matched to their actual role, did we, were we able to, to match those two? If they were matched in green, uh, they had significantly lower symptoms of PTSD than if they were discordant. So how we approach assessing family members' preferred role and then trying to match our approach to that can make a difference. And that gives rise to this idea that there's a spectrum for the right approach uh, that goes all the way from parentalism or doctor decides on one end of the spectrum to autonomy or informed choice on the other end of the spectrum. And shared decision-making ought to be our default in general uh, in the ICU when it comes to decisions about intensity of care at the end of life. But we need to be able to move up and down this scale based on the prognosis and our certainty about the prognosis 
as well as the family's preferences uh, their role in decision making. Um, I just recently returned from a sabbatical in, in France where I uh, uh, thoroughly enjoyed uh, French food and French wine, but also learned a lot about how they provide uh, intensive care uh, and how they work with families. And I thought there were some really interesting lessons uh, from uh, the difference between um, uh, France and the U.S. Um, in France, in general, the default shared decision-making is closer to parentalism, uh, whereas in the U.S., particularly in many hospitals, it's closer to autonomy. Um, uh, intensive care units are much more inclusive of the ICU team uh, with these LAT meetings, limitation, uret, the, the therapeutic. Um, and during these meetings, full consensus is required. And in fact, it's a French law that says you can't proceed with withdrawing life support unless there's full consensus on the team, which is really a wonderful way of making sure that these decisions are interdisciplinary and that we incorporate the interdisciplinary team. Um, I think that happens much less in the U.S., although we do tend to be more inclusive of the patient's family in this decision-making than they do in France. Um, France is behind us in terms of advanced care planning and the integration of palliative care into acute care and, and uh, uh, ICU settings, uh, and we have more of that in the U.S., um, but the French are also more focused on the patient's wishes, even in the patient who can't communicate, and I think we don't always do as good a job of that in the U.S., um, uh, which I thought was interesting. There are temporal changes in this, in this, uh, uh, in where we are on this spectrum between uh, parentalism and autonomy. Um, I think in the 1960s, uh, France and uh, the U.S. looked very similar, uh, and we both had very parentalistic uh, or uh, paternalistic uh, approaches. Um, but by the 1990s, we had in the U.S. had really taken this dramatic swing on this out toward the default being much more autonomy or informed choice. And at least what I see is I see now as time goes on, we're moving closer together. We're moving more towards shared decision making, uh, which I think is, is where we want to be. Uh, I think that uh, individual cases may, uh, should be on one end of the spectrum or another perhaps, but that our defaults ought to be more toward uh, shared decision making. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about common barriers to palliative care in the intensive care unit, which uh, may be of interest to uh, palliative care providers interested in improving uh, or being more involved in the ICU. I think one of the most important for a palliative care service interested in integrating into the ICU is to really understand ICU culture, to learn ICU medicine, and to understand the interprofessional dynamics uh, in the intensive care unit, and specifically in the intensive care unit that you're interested in integrating into. This is not unique to the ICU. This is true whether you're trying to integrate palliative care into an oncology service or a geriatric service or what have you, uh, but I do think it's one of the most important uh, aspects to doing this well and one of the biggest uh, barriers and downfalls uh, if we don't do that well. Um, and these key barriers can uh, vary a lot from unit to unit. Um, without um, being too stereotypical, I will say that I think it's quite different in a medical ICU than a surgical ICU. In many medical ICUs, the most common barrier is the medical intensivists feel like 
we already do this. We're very good at family conferences. Um, we're very good at shared decision making. We don't need your help. Uh, in the surgical ICU, the more common barrier is we don't trust you to talk to families uh, because we're worried that you have an agenda toward withdrawing life support and we're not ready for that yet. Um, and I think standing these barriers is really key to being able to overcome them. In the medical ICU, in my experience, Perhaps this is a little bit uh, harder to overcome, but what I have found helpful is to really clarify what palliative care is, to acknowledge that the medical intensivists may be very good at running family meetings. Um, they certainly think they are, they often are, um, but to broaden their perspective on what palliative care is uh, and make sure they understand that includes anticipatory uh, bereavement, it includes supporting family members after death with bereavement support. It includes helping patients if they're able uh, face death. You know, many of these things that intensivists acknowledge is not part of their training or part of their skill set. Uh, and also, uh, I think particularly important, helping with continuity for those patients who are discharged from the ICU. Many of our now have our closed units and the intensivists aren't involved once the patient's discharged from the ICU. And for patients with uh, uh, ongoing palliative care needs, I think that can be a, a really helpful in into the medical ICU. In the surgical ICU, uh, I think the key to overcoming this barrier is to make it clear that that's not what we do. We're not going to bring up withdrawal of life support with a family uh, before the, the surgeons or surgical intensivists are ready for that. Um, if it does come up, we'll talk to them first before having a conversation with the family about it. And I think uh, at least what we've found is that once we convince the surgeons uh, that that's true, the barriers just, this, this one in particular, seems to just melt away. Um, we often get a lot of pelvic care consults in our surgical ICU. In fact, sometimes more than we can handle. Um, one of our surgeons wanted to see every patient over the age of 65 in the surgical ICU, which was something we couldn't handle. Um, and we really have had a very, once we got over that barrier, we've had a very good relationship. So in summary then, um, uh, I've been focusing on uh, a number of factors around how to improve palliative care in the ICU. Um, I think there's a lot of variability in the way we approach intensity of care, uh, which suggests uh, that communication is highly variable, and I think we have experience to show that it is. Uh, and it's a real opportunity, I think, for improving uh, quality of care. A number of interventions have been successful. Uh, but there are some very important lessons uh, learned from both those that were successful and those that were not. Uh, I think that integrative models really need to be adapted to each ICUs vary quite a bit in terms of uh, what the issues are that need to be addressed to improve palliative care. Consultative models must understand the ICU team and must integrate with and work well with the ICU team uh, to be successful. And I think in the future, uh, where I think we have a real opportunity is identifying high-risk patients and family members. And by this, I don't mean necessarily patients that are at high risk for dying. I know how to do that well in the ICU. But risk of dying and unmet palliative care needs, while they're associated, um, they're not the same thing. And we have many patients at high risk of dying who may not not have unmet palliative care needs, uh, and we have a lot of patients who are relatively lower risk of dying with enormous unmet palliative care needs. And so I think we need to do a better job of identifying
identifying those needs. And we need to realize the interventions that we think are going to be successful. In fact, when they're tested, they're not and may actually even potentially be associated with harm. And we need to be aware of those unintended consequences uh, and look for them uh, through our uh, research as well as quality improvement. And with that, I'll stop and uh, turn it back to Russ. Randy, thank you very much. That was terrific. Can you hear me now? That was terrific. Can you hear me now? I can, yes. Okay, great. Um, okay, great. We have, we have quite a, a um, few uh, questions, and I'll try to run through them. Um, let me start. A number of the questions that we've got, Randy, are rather high level. And, um, rather high level. Sounds like some of the viewers would like some additional, uh, some additional um, characterization of what, how you view palliative care in the critical care setting. Uh, for example, there's one question that says, palliative care in the critical care setting just sounds like good communication. Uh, is, palliative, is, is communication training enough to offer palliative care in the, in the ICU? Yeah, I think it's a very good question, and I think it's a um, an issue that palliative care as a field really has to address throughout the spectrum of, of uh, places and ways in which we provide palliative care. We, I think that we've gained a lot of ground by defining palliative care broadly um, and not simply being about end-of-life care or hospice. Um, I think that's been very helpful, but one of the challenges I think is is really embodied in this question is that if you define it broadly, then what's the difference between palliative care and simply good quality care and good quality communication? And, and my response to that is that there isn't a difference, that they are the same thing, um, but that our system does not do a good job of providing that kind of care for patients with serious illness in many settings, and I think the ICU is just one of them. Um, in the ICU, I think, I think that question speaks to how important it is to understand each ICU and figure out how much uh, ground can we gain by improving primary palliative care by ICU clinicians, improving their communication, versus uh, focusing on bringing in consultants. And, and I really do believe it, it's something we have to do uh, uh, simultaneously. Um, I think that the consultants, the specialists, can be leaders around providing the care education. Um, and that can be part of the process that helps us work together between palliative care and, and critical care uh, providers. I think in each individual ICU, what proportion of patients receive a palliative care consult varies widely, and it probably should. It depends on the patient population, the needs, but also the primary palliative care expertise. So I don't know if, if Russ, if you think that answers the question. I think, but I do think that it's, um, I do believe strongly that it's important to have a broad perspective on what palliative care is um, and, um, and understand that it is about good quality care and good quality communication, um, but that there are situations that are particularly difficult that require um, expertise, specialty level expertise, to meet patients' and families' needs. It, you know, there's another, um, another questioner basically asked the same question from a different perspective. So let me ask this and see if you, if you just want to say you've answered it or you want to expand on it. Uh, the, the question okay. is, uh, 
we teach palliative care as reflecting needs in eight domains and requiring a comprehensive assessment. You use the term unmet palliative care needs multiple times. What do you mean by unmet palliative care needs in the ICU? Yeah, I think, so I think that's a good point. And I agree with a comprehensive assessment. Uh, we do the same thing on our palliative care uh, service. Um, and I think that, I, you know, when I talk about unmet palliative care needs, I do mean unmet needs across the, the full spectrum of uh, those, uh, the types of needs that people may have. So it may include physical, it may include emotional, it may include spiritual. Uh, a lot of it in the ICU focuses on um, uh, communication about what's happening and the decisions that need to be made, supporting patients and families in shared decision making. So I, I do see it as, as across all of those domains. Um, and I think that there may be some domains um, where uh, in the ICU primary palliative care is uh, more advanced and especially palliative care is needed less. For example, at least in our ICUs, pain and symptom management is something that, that the ICU providers, I think, are very good at. And I think they rarely need specialty help around treating pain and dyspnea and other physical symptoms. Where they, they, and they almost always need help, either from palliative care or spiritual care, around spiritual needs. The others are a spectrum and, and vary a little bit from ICU to ICU. And here's another question on the same issue, um, but, and I think you're doing great, so, so I hesitate to ask it, but it is, it is a, an interesting question. Uh, the question is, um, what makes critical care special when considering how to integrate palliative care? Is it the focus on preserving life? Is it the type of medicine that's practiced? Or is it the ICU setting? Yeah, I think I would say it's all of the above. And, and, and I also would say that although I think it is a little unique, I think a lot of these same issues come up in other contexts as well. I think it can come up in on oncology services. It can come up on neurology services. I, I do think a lot of the same issues, they may, um, individual services or units may be different, but a lot of the same issues about understanding the needs of these particular patients patients, understanding the culture of these providers, I don't think there's anything terribly unique uh, about the importance of those issues. But I think that what the ICU does as the, as the person asking the question uh, underlines is ICUs tend to focus on life support, high technology, um, and uh, um, uh, the patients we admit to the ICU have generally uh, accepted the that approach, um, although sometimes that's something that we need to sort out. Uh, but it 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 does. Uh, I think the patient population uh, is a little bit different as well. You know, when I started this work in this area 25 years ago, um, a lot of ICU clinicians didn't think this was a very important part of ICU care. They were really focused on physiology, life support, um, 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 technology, uh, and I think that's changed a lot. I think there's a growing recognition of the importance uh, of palliative care issues in training ICU clinicians, both physicians and nurses, and I think that's great. But I also um, specialty palliative care is is a very important part of um, 
providing the best care to critically ill patients. Um, I work as both an ICU doctor and a palliative care doctor. You could say, well, why would I need to call a palliative care consult? And yet, I call palliative care consults in the ICU all the time. Um, I call them sometimes because I don't have a, as much time as palliative care does to sit with the patient and family. I call them because once I discharge them from the ICU, I don't see them again. And they really need some continuity and follow-up uh, to ensure um, uh, symptom control or even more commonly to ensure that goals of care are really worked out and secured across teams. Um, and I call them sometimes because I believe that with some patients and families it's really helpful to have an additional perspective, that additional team coming in uh, to, to sit with the family and be separate from the intensivists and the ICU team and help them struggle through some of the issues they're working through. Um, one of the questioners asks whether you uh, believe that uh, specialty palliative care requires a team, or is it enough just to have a palliative care provider have a presence in the ICU? Uh, I do believe that it requires a team. Um, I, our team includes physicians, nurses, social workers, and spiritual care providers. Um, and I think, and I, and I, although all of those providers may play a similar role with any given patient or family, I think that expertise is really key and having a group that works well as a team uh, is key as well. One of the questions here is about the unintended consequences. Uh, the, the questioner is just asking for more details. Um, I had not considered unintended consequences as a result of improving communication uh, in the ICU setting. How do we actually yeah. monitor for that and try to prevent it? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I think a lot of times if we don't look for this, we're not going to see it. You know, I think, I think many of us might have felt, gee, a, a program to routinely send condolence letters out sounds like a good idea. Let's just do it. Um, and um, we don't really understand why symptoms went up, and uh, but I think that at least suggests to me, it, it, I should say, I, I'm not opposed to condolence letters, but I think it at least suggests we shouldn't implement that routinely for all ICU uh, deaths um, without understanding that. Um, and, you know, similarly, the unintended consequence of the palliative care-led family meetings, we wouldn't know unless we, we looked for that. I think in terms of the question of how we monitor for it, it's a, it's a good question. I think research is one way, um, but I also think we can think about, for all of our quality improvement efforts, what evaluations do we have in place and how can we make sure that, we're, that they're effective, that they're making things better, um, and that, that particularly that they're not causing unintended consequences that might be making things worse. Uh, here's a little bit of a challenging question about unintended consequences. Um, Maybe, the, maybe your surgical colleagues are correct and earlier death is an unintended consequence of palliative care. How do we communicate that that's not, what, that that's not what's happening? Well, I think the first point I would make about that is that we need to make sure that that isn't what's happening. Um, and, you know, in Doug White's study in the New England Journal of Medicine, there was an increase in hospital death. It didn't persist to six months, 
that, you know, what does that mean? If our interventions are associated with increased death, I think personally, I think we need to know that and understand it. Uh, it may be that that increased death represents a reduction in the prolongation of dying and the reduction in suffering. Um, but without studies to understand the impact of these interventions, I don't think we know that. Um, and I think that's something that we need to make sure we continually monitor for. Uh, one of the questioners wanted you to give a little bit more information about the negative trials that you pointed to before. Uh, and the question is a little more specific. It says, um, you showed us a number of negative trials with communication strategies. Is it possible that a key thing that was missing was a focus on spirituality at the end of life? I think that is possible. Um, I think that uh, we've not seen a lot of in interventions that focus on the spiritual aspects or providing spiritual support. Uh, that's a very important um, aspect that we really do need to understand uh, how to do better. And um, we have two more questions, Randy. The, the first one um, you may not be able to answer. Why is there so much variation in withholding and withdrawing across ICUs in the U.S.? Yeah, physician independent. That it that a lot of it is driven by physicians' attitudes um, around um, uh, this issue, and a lot of times where we see variation like this, the, the quote unquote right amount is probably somewhere in the middle. Um, but I believe that this this variation is driven by physician attitudes and by a lack of professional consensus uh, for ICU physicians around how we ought to approach. Uh, communicating with families and making decisions about intensity of care uh, for the seriously ill. And I think we have, um, there was actually two more questions, I'm sorry, I missed this one, but the, uh, we'll see how long, it, it, how long you require to talk about this one. This, this next question is a big issue. Um, how does the palliative care provider handle conflict, uh, it, uh, specifically interprofessional conflict, in dealing with some of these very challenging problems? Yeah, I do. I believe that a very important skill for palliative care providers is to uh, identify, uh, understand, and help mediate conflict. I think this is what, a lot of what we do, um, and I think it's an important part of our training, um, and, and often is. Um, I will say that I don't think conflict is necessarily a bad thing, um, and in fact, Worse than conflict is burying conflict that's there and not acknowledging it, not addressing it. So I, I don't think conflict is necessarily a bad thing, but um, I think it's very important that we are open about it, communicate about it. And I think palliative care providers can really help, help play a role in helping mediate uh, conflict, whether that's within the interprofessional team um, or um, between the team and the family. Um, I think a lot of our consults uh, from ICUs are generated uh, by nurses who are unhappy with how things are going and are really, it's really about providing support to the nurses, identifying the source of the conflict, and helping to mediate that conflict. Uh, that's great. I, I do think we have time for one more quick question, Randy, and, it's, um, and again, it's a big, big topic, but the, the last question here is just about how 
uh, how the, the integrative model addresses the issue of culture, uh, particularly in, uh, in areas of the country where um, patients can arrive speaking different languages and having different backgrounds. Yeah, well, I, I think both the integrative and the consultative model in training for both of those models, it's very important uh, that we incorporate culture and cross-cultural communication. I believe that a lot of effective communication across cultures involves basic palliative care skills. Uh, first, listening. Um, and I think we can go a long way towards helping by focusing on training uh, in, in listening, whether it's, whether it's training ICU clinicians or palliative care specialists. Uh, but I think that understanding the cultures seen by a given ICU and helping that ICU understand the unique ways that that culture can influence um, attitudes, uh, values, uh, and goals uh, is, is very important. It's also important that we not use culture to stereotype people. Just because you know what culture someone comes from, you don't necessarily know what their uh, values and goals are, and that's why I think listening is perhaps one of the most important ways to address this issue. Well, I, I can't believe that we got through all those questions, but you were terrific, and your talk was fantastic, and it was it's really been a terrific treat to have you uh, join us today. I want to thank everybody for attending Dr. Curtis's lecture, and I also want to invite you to the next Professor's Rounds, which will be given by Dr. Jennifer Tamil, the Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard uh, Medical School and Director of Cancer Outcomes Research at the Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center. Her topic is going to be ensuring the delivery of high-quality care through the cancer trajectory, and it will be given on October 4th, 2018 at 4 p.m. Uh, please remember uh, to uh, complete all your webinar evaluations. They help us plan for the future. Um, and again, I'll thank Dr. Curtis for an outstanding uh, discussion today. Thank you. Bye.